Hey everybody, it's Reverend Beth, and this is Souls and Souls. This is the first episode in our series on artificial intelligence. It also includes sermons that you'll find over at canadianmemorial.org or on our YouTube channel, Canadian Memorial United Church. I'm really excited about this series, so listen in. I hope you enjoy it. I'm in conversation today with Dr. James F. McGrath, Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University in Indianapolis. He studied at Cambridge, the University of London, um, and Durham University, where he earned his PhD. Dr. McGrath has authored, edited, contributed to several books, including his most recent, What Jesus Learned from Women. Of interest today are the numerous articles, short stories uh, that he's authored on science fiction. He blogs about religion, the Bible, sci-fi, evolution, and many other interesting topics on the website Pathios, and you'll find him there under the channel Religion Prof. And so welcome, James. Good to be in conversation today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this uh, program. So happy to have the chance to talk to you today. Yeah, so I, um, um, science fiction, I'm doing a series on artificial intelligence with some podcasts and sermons in my local church. And I have to say, when I found you, uh, sci-fi and all my research was an area that I had just been ignoring. So, uh, so be gentle with me here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thrilled um, with all I've learned as I've researched this conversation, but I, I wanna start with a really personal question. Okay. Because uh, you and I are about the same age. So I'm, I'm going back to 1977. You're about four and a half. Did you go to the theaters <laughs> to see Star Wars? I, I don't have a re- recollection of seeing the original. I think I was too young. And although some of my earliest memories of toys are science fiction related toys. Uh, and I will say for the benefit of those listening and wondering about which franchise I align with, yeah. I had both Star Wars and Star Trek toys. Uh, as well as some Battlestar Galactica ones. But I don't have a clear memory of going to see uh, the original Star Wars movie in theaters. I do remember Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Uh, so. well, and it was enough for it to fix the memory. And it, we could go down a rabbit hole there with the toys. Yeah. My um, my brother um, had was definitely loyal to Star Wars and uh, I would often steal the Luke Skywalker, including the, the lightsabers. <laughs> So on to more serious things, though. Um, y- you um, you reference Ian Barber in your writing, and people who don't know, of course, he pretty much invented the whole discipline of religion and science, and really pushed against that twentieth century notion that these you know you couldn't be a, a scientist and a priest uh, that the two actually could inform one another. So your aim, you say, is to talk about theology and sci-fi um, and to engage them kind of as equal partners in conversation. So why do you think that matters? Like, what what is it that this engagement between the disciplines might achieve? Yeah, and I'm sure there are listeners who are wondering why you've got like the Clarence L. Goodwin chair in New Testament language and literature on to talk about science fiction and totally uh, like yeah. computer technology <laughs> and artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, they won't be the first to wonder that. I occasionally wonder that myself. <laughs> but part of it is having either creatively eclectic and diverse interests or 
the flip side of that, the more negative way of putting it is very short attention span. But I'm privileged to teach in a, a context where I, I'm allowed to, and sometimes even encouraged to explore side interests. And science fiction is a longstanding love of mine. I mean, it goes back to some of my earliest memories, but I rediscovered it as an adult and found that it engages with a lot of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, the ethical questions, uh, the questions about uh, the meaning of religious stories, worldview, cross-cultural encounters. Um, and oftentimes these things can be broached in a particularly effective way uh, through fiction in general and science fiction because it allows for things that are not necessarily real and yet it's set in the real world, even if it's an, um, an imagined future and not in uh, a fictional uh, fantasy world or something like that. It allows the author and allows the reader to engage with some important questions. And among those are questions about where technology might go in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess, you know, some people might say, well, theology or philosophy, like that's the stuff of experts. And, and I've heard you say that it's, that science fiction and all of its expressions in, in film and writing, um, because it's consumed by everyday folks, it brings those questions kind of into everyday life. Like, do you think there's a benefit? And I mean, do you think that everyday people should be caring about what technology is doing in our world? I do very strongly. Um, and I've engaged with this. Uh, I have a longstanding interest, partly because of the uh, religious route that I've traveled and some of the ideas that I was exposed to. And uh, at least for a time persuaded to embrace, uh, but have later came to think better of mm. uh, about the intersection of religion and science and whether they are at odds and things of that sort. The question of how one does theology in the context of a scientific worldview and the things we know about the world, how that relates to biblical studies, which often brings to light the fact that the ancient biblical authors had a different view of the world, different assumptions than modern people do. Uh, all of those things I think are interrelated. And I think it's important to think about present day technology um, and the very near future, programming of driverless cars, uh, search engines and the algorithms that generate results and sometimes produce results that have biases that uh, contribute to uh, racial uh, and gender inequities and other forms of injustice in our world. And so all of that matters, but by the time that technology is a real life everyday thing, mm. it's very late to be reflecting on what to do about it. All you can do is quickly play catch up. And so I think there's some definite advantage to speculating about the future, thinking about what the eth ethical conundrums might be if technology goes in a particular direction and reflecting on it before it happens. Mm. Yeah, and you know, somewhere in your writing, I, you know, you talk about androids and whether, um, you know, that definition of consciousness and what defines personhood. And what really intrigued me is this notion that you put forth that it's possible that these questions of, is this um, android a person that it, 
it might actually influence those um, religious expressions that are already looking towards inclusion um, to really be challenged to grow. And you make some sort of parallels between what we've had to before. Uh, we've had, we have a bad history in religion of saying, well, you're not the right kind of person. Uh, so I just find that a, that's one of those practical, fascinating ways that the work you're doing kind of really resonates with folks. Yeah, and one of the things that science fiction has sometimes been able to do is to, for instance, tell stories about encounters with with extraterrestrials, um, whether whether humanoid robots, something uh, things that one wonders about from that perspective, or biological entities, but very different from ourselves, and. Before you know it, if you're a viewer and a fan of the genre, you may find that, oh, this is a parable. This is talking about racism. This is addressing things in the real world. And one of the things that science fiction sometimes manages to do is to fly under people's radars, right? Mm -hmm. it, uh, and I'm sure that the fact that I have an appreciation for a famous uh, teacher who taught in parables uh, probably has some connection to this. But I do think that telling stories sometimes is an effective way of engaging in reflection and of challenging people to, to broaden their horizons. When you speak about um, looking at, uh, when you're looking at theology and religion and science fiction, you want to go way deeper than allegory. And it's interesting in my work trying to make sense of Bible stories each week. Um, when I start looking at stories as allegory, I realize, oh, this is this is not going to go to good places. <laughs> I'm going to get really preachy here. What, what is it you want to, where is it you want to go that's sort of deeper than allegory um, in terms of bringing uh, this genre to life um, in meaningful ways? Yeah, uh, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, and I'm sure I've done I've done some of that, you know, looking for Christ figures and oh look this person just as they sacrifice themselves, uh, stretch out their arms and it's kind of like the sign of the cross. Yeah. And there's religious symbolism uh, all over the place in pretty much every genre, and some of that is just yeah pandering to particular uh, possible viewers. Some of it is just drawing on uh, widely familiar symbols in order to just emphasize a dramatic moment. But I think we need to really look more closely than that. Um, sure, it's fun to point those out, but you can point them out everywhere. And sometimes you're reading things into a movie or a book or a story or whatever it is that may never have been intended by the, the author or filmmaker. But when we start to look at how storytellers use these things, uh, particularly you find out that, let's say, uh, the mastermind behind this particular uh, television series is an atheist, but has lots of characters who are religious or has humans and their religions depicted one way, but then alien religions depicted another way or things like that. Mm. So much of that gives us a chance to engage with sort of how our culture perceives religion, how it views difference. And it's that sort of deeper engagement with you know, even, even if you're noticing Christ figures, it's like, okay, but what is the person doing? Um, what's, what, are the dif what are the differences between this character and the story of Jesus? And how are those as important as noticing a few uh, superficial sim similarities? So just digging beneath the surface, I think, is what really can bring out the richness of, of, of storytelling. Well, and it makes me think it's, in a sense, what you're 
adding to in the depth of our common story is this press against um, the dualism, the dichotomies that so um, <laughs> were so prevalent throughout the 20th century. That um, so, I, I love to critique other Christians who just read everything literally or think that they do. Um, but actually, what you're saying, I hear. Uh, <laughs> if I'm watching a movie and seeing Christian figures, I'm probably doing. I'm seeing it through my own lens. Like you're actually challenging all of us um, to, yeah, go deeper and also just uh, look wider than we might be inclined yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a Buddhist or an atheist watching the same movie uh, may notice different symbols or may respond to the same symbols and the same uh, motifs in different ways. Well, I'd like you to lead like an interfaith um, <laughs> watch night with the teenagers in my community. <laughs> Although they'd probably teach us, right? They already see the world um, more broadly that way. So do you think um, stories, you, you've mentioned stories. I, I know you're a storyteller. You've written some stories, <laughs> like sci-fi stories. Um, in the circles that I move in, there's a lot of talk about we need new stories, that the story of rampant individualism and the story of neoliberalism and capitalism, they're not serving us well. So, uh, you know, in fact, some say they're literally killing us. So when you bring together science fiction and theology, like, do you think that there are hints um, here for us to look at at a new story? Are there new stories to be learned or told? Yes, uh, I believe there are. And I think, you know, just as I've, I've mentioned parables as one mm. analog to uh, storytelling in general, and one of the functions that science fiction can have, uh, it can be ethical thought experiments, you know, as we ponder the future and think about matters of, you know, questions of value. But another genre, another biblical genre that I think it intersects with in interesting ways is that of prophecy, right? And Many people view prophecy as about predicting the future, you know, and you know, a prophet is, is true or worth reading depending on how much they got right. Mm. Um, and then of course, you know, if, you're, if you're the sort of fundamentalist literalist, then if they didn't get it right, but it's in the Bible, then it must just be still be something that's still to happen and you can just keep mm -hmm. pushing things off. But science fiction, I think if you engage it looking at, so how many, technologies did it predict correctly and how much of this story seems antiquated uh, already in uh, 2022 and it's set in 2322 or something like that and yet uh, their devices already seem archaic because the story was uh, created in the 1950s or something like that. Yeah. I think that's sort of missing the point in a lot of ways in the same way that literalist readers of the Bible often do. Ultimately, what science fiction and what prophetic literature and other types of things offer us, on the one hand, are warnings, right? We're headed in this direction, and if we keep going in that direction, it's going to have effects, it's going to have consequences, it's going to lead us places that could be disastrous. Mm -hmm. And conversely, to hold out a vision of, that's hopeful, to give us something to fix our gaze on and say, we, we hope for that. We long for that. We want that. And sometimes that leads simply to, to hopefulness. Sometimes it leads people to actually try to make the world in the image of that hopeful vision. And science fiction, certainly for, for some fans of some genres and some franchises, 
or some stories can have that effect, right? We've seen people inspired to get involved in the sciences, get involved in space exploration because of the, the hopeful vision of where that could lead us uh, as a species in the future that's offered in science fiction. And so I think, I think thinking of it as at least analogous to prophecy can also be interesting. Well, and of course, you also, I mean, you, in what I, in my limited knowledge of science fiction, you also have what people would call apocalyptic stories. Mm -hmm. yeah. But interesting, so you've just reminded folks that prophecy uh, is not so much a prediction of the future, but a, a revealing of what might be. Uh, the same way that although you might look at a sci-fi that uh, it seems like an apocalyptic end, uh, tell folks what about the, the root of that word too. Uh, yeah, yeah, because that's a that's a word that comes up in science fiction regularly, mm -hmm. and yet it comes from a genre of literature that takes its name from uh, the Book of Revelation, essentially, right? Apocalypsis mm -hmm. in Greek means uh, a disclosure, an unveiling, a revelation, and the uh, Revelation of John, right? In some English translations, is called the Apocalypse of John because they transliterate rather than translate the title. And then branching out from there, scholars said, you know, there are other books that have the same characteristics, the symbolism and the uh, fo focus on the future and other things, the expectation that God will bring justice in the end. And so scholars now talk about apocalyptic literature, including uh, the second half of the book of Daniel and uh, a number of things that aren't in, the, aren't in the Bible as well, or at least aren't in most Bibles, I'll put it that way. And in the same way, I think the thing that prophecy in the Bible actually does and that science fiction actually does when it's talking about the future is really comment on the present day of the author, right? And so even if it's talking about the future saying, uh, this, this is what's coming, or uh, let's hope for this, or this is what God will do, or this is where technology will go. Uh, it's either saying, let's not go there. We still have a chance to avoid this, or let's hope for, pray for, but also work for making this a reality. And so in that way, I think if we focus too much on what it's saying about the future, mm. we may miss that it's it's always to some extent speaking to the present day of the time in which it was written. Yeah, okay, so let's go to our present day. I wanna, I wanna circle back to the ethics conversation mm -hmm. and you know, saying it's too late once, once the technology is literally in our hands um, to ask the important questions. Um, how, how hopeful are you that we're asking the question soon enough? <laughs> Not, not I, very, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and maybe not, but maybe more than that, not widely enough. Hmm. And I think the biggest danger a lot of the time is that we often realize too late which questions are really worth asking and important to ask. Science fiction and you know, futurists, as well as you know, doomsayers of a religious bent and various others, have lots to say about the future and where things might go. I think one of the things that really shifted my thinking about ancient Israel's prophets was realizing that these were people who weren't just dreaming something or getting a vision of something or having some kind of inner experience. These were people who were connected to sort of political life. Uh, when Ezekiel is talking 
about exile, uh, when Jeremiah is talking about exile, you know, I mean, Ezekiel is already in Babylonia, right? A, a first wave of exiles has been carried off. And so we get the sense that, you know, Jeremiah is not looking in a crystal ball, as it were, not that that would be an acceptable thing for an ancient Israelite <laughs> prophet to do, but doing that sort of thing that people imagine, you know, soothsayers and foretellers of the future are doing, where they simply see it as it's unfold. He senses where it's going and where it could go. And he's trying to save his nation from disaster. And so the, the political, uh, the emotional, you know, he's got this inner turmoil, uh, all of the religious, all that's intersecting in, in this figure. Mm. And he was one of very few that were asking those sorts of questions in that form. And lots of people were saying, well, you know, it'll, it'll all work out okay, right? Let's just, the main thing is stick together. Don't rock the boat the way this Jeremiah figure is. <laughs> Don't ask these awkward questions about uh, where this might lead. And so I think the key thing is listening to a diversity of voices, recognizing that from the, the comfort of even the relatively poor in North America, uh, the perspective that we have on things like climate change and how it might affect things, how technology is or isn't impacting the world, might or might not impact us in the future, is just a small sliver of the human experience. And there are other, other voices, other perspectives we need to hear. And so I think that's the best way to, to ask the right questions and to try to do so soon enough is, is to open ourselves to hearing other voices because we don't know when we're not asking certain questions that might be worth asking unless we listen to others who are asking them. Well, and of course, um, I mean, maybe easy enough in an academic setting where you're, <laughs> where you have students at your disposal to um, uh, force those conversations. But how, how do you see that happening? I mean, obviously, in this interconnected global world where information uh, is so readily available, we ought to be able to listen to prophetic voices um, far different from those in our own North American context, if you will. Uh, you have any ideas of how to, how to teach people to do that? Well, uh, I mean, I, I try lots of things. Yeah. I, uh, blogging, you know, you get people who are interested in the stuff you're interested in, and that, mm -hmm. you know, only takes you so far. Uh, writing for a general audience, again, you know, mm -hmm. can be hit or miss. But things like, you know, writing fiction and movies, your stories can connect with people. And if you do it in a heavy-handed way, it's, it's never going to get people to listen and reflect in the ways you hope it will. But if you actually tell a really good story and embed in it something that is a, an ethical question worth pondering or a question about a trajectory we might or might not follow in the future, then it can lead to people having serious discussions. Mm -hmm. And so when you said that you know, we moved from uh, the question about whether I went to see the original Star Wars to something more serious, I was like, this could be serious, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Star Wars, maybe, you know, less so than some others at uh, much of the time, but even yeah. there, I think there, there are depths to it that uh, one can explore. But I think storytelling uh, and doing so in a way that isn't uh, heavy-handedly heavy preaching can, yes. can be important and be useful. 
Well, yeah, and um, well, that's helpful to see it that way. So let's talk about a movie I I do know more about. Although I, I mean, I have seen the first the three Star Wars movies, but um, let's get really recent. Uh, friends of mine uh, in recent months have been talking about the movie that's on Netflix right now with uh, Leonardo. Um, don't don't look up. Um, all right, let's let's. <laughs> What's your opinion on that one? Not pretty, not exactly yeah. sci-fi, but um, no, it, it's, it's, in in that, it's in that genre. And yeah. one of the things you do when you start getting into sci-fi is you realize that there, there are more stories in print uh, and there are more television series and films than one can fit in to see. And so I haven't seen Don't Look Up yet. Okay. Um, I gather uh, from what I've seen that it's you know telling that sort of apocalyptic scenario story and is is really engaging with our our, and tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. uh, our ability to, to live in denial about impending doom. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the critique is, um, well, it's a great entertainment to watch a movie that is uh, such a reflection of our own ability to live in denial. Um, but what difference does it make? Mm. But I, what I hear you saying is, let's keep telling the stories and keep engaging in the conversations. And we'll, we might just start to realize what questions we ought to be asking. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, we don't always know we're living in the denial. I mean, sometimes it's very deliberate and conscious, but mm. the very act of denial becoming conscious sometimes makes it harder to sustain, mm -hmm. right? I think in order to, to be in denial effectively, you actually have to deny you're in denial, right? There has to be this multi-layered a version of one's gaze from the problem that one doesn't want to think about. And it's surprising what kinds of stories can sometimes break through at least a layer of those defenses. And just like with, you know, sharing, you know, sharing an act of kindness or sharing a, a thought, you know, of a spiritual sort, it may not have a, an immediate effect, but that doesn't mean it's not contributing to an overall trajectory of people getting to the point where they might have important conversations. Uh, sometimes it's the third or fourth series that you watch that engages with something where you're like, wow, huh, I'm starting to notice a pattern here. Maybe I should think about this. Well, and I think that's really helpful in our world today. I mean, certainly I feel a sense of urgency of let's get on with uh, looking up, let's get on with paying yeah. attention. Um, so to remind people that um, it's the, uh, the accumulative effect of continuing to watch the movies, read the stories, listen to different voices, um, where we start to make connections. It, it reminds me, you, you know, I was going to read a quote from your book, I'll try to paraphrase, but you, you know, you talk about how we understand the mechanisms, um, what is it, of the brain, uh, the hardware of the brain, but impossible to determine um, how much longer it might be for us to understand the software of the mind. Like, I, So it's like what you're saying is this, it's in the software of the mind that these um, things can come together. And I don't know. Yeah. A better and, future. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the reasons why questions like, you know, are these aliens, you know, is, is, is this a person? right? Uh, this, this android, is it a person? Uh, we're inclined to make assumptions about those that are like us, and we've often managed to dehumanize fellow human beings across uh, differences. 
of, of appearance and things of that sort. So we don't have a great track record, but part of the problem, if we expand beyond the human is that with fellow human beings, we at least have the analogy that, okay, this person is the same species as I am. And so I experience myself having this inner life. I'm a person. I want to have certain rights, want to be respected in certain ways. And then you just apply the golden rule. And there we go. What if you're not sure what's going on inside that other entity, right? If it looks cute and cuddly or looks like a person, we might be inclined to grant it rights, even though it's really just, you know, creative programming that's designed to fool us. And meanwhile, this box that's sitting on our desk might actually have a mind inside it and we wouldn't know. And we, we might be more skeptical because of the outward appearance. And so I think there are things in our past uh, where we've done poorly that need to inform how we approach some of these questions. And some of the biggest questions are, what do we do when we can't be certain, right? I mean, I think those are important ethical questions to reflect on, even when the question may be inherently unanswerable. Well, uh, and yeah, what do we do when we can't be certain? Yeah, well, what, what in the world can we be certain about? I, I mean, it hasn't that been uh, revealed so much more in, <laughs> in the past decades? So, uh, so I hear a, a bit of it, let's, let's equip people or let's uh, lean into that idea of we're living in uncertain times um, and to not necessarily figure out immediately how to resolve that but how to sit with that uncertainty in a way that I guess allows us the time to discern um, the best choices and yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think being comfortable with uncertainty is important, but I think also navigating the fact that not everything is uncertain and not everything is equally uncertain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I used to tell students regularly that, yeah, I don't care what you think, I care how you think and things of that sort. And I've sort of moved away from that in our era of rampant misinformation yeah. to emphasize more that often there, there are multiple possibilities, right? Sometimes 99.9% .9 of experts agree on something. And when the experts agree, that counts for something. Uh, the experts can still be wrong, but it's more likely that you sitting in your armchair judging the experts and judging the matter from a distance without uh, getting into the lab or getting out and researching it are wrong. But then sometimes the experts disagree and there may be three main views and the evidence probably is less decisive in that case and understanding the difference there. And then recognizing that even when there may be three genuinely viable possibilities doesn't mean that everything is possible, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen so many people trying to write their own version of truth that I think we need to find that, uh, that balance between recognizing diversity and recognizing that we don't know everything and that, that humility about our own perspective on things. And yet also the ability to recognize that precisely when multiple perspectives are converging on something, uh, it, may give us, it may give us greater insight. It may get us closer to the truth precisely because uh, just like our two eyes, uh, when functioning properly, says the, the wearer of glasses, uh, help us to see depth and detail that we can't see uh, just with one. Having other perspectives, right? hearing from other people in other parts of the world, listening to a community of experts, walking, uh, working on a, a problem across 
differences of culture, differences of background, political alignment, ideology. When people converge on something, then it could still be wrong, but it seems like it's less likely to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how to recognize the validity of multiple viewpoints and also combat misinformation, there's a balance there that it's something I, I work hard on and think a lot about as an educator. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we could have a whole conversation on, mm-hmm. on truth, couldn't we? I, okay, I want to get personal again. Um, yeah, I, I, so New Testament professor, you're in the religious studies department, and we won't go in in great depth to religion versus theology, but you're not training pastors to work in churches. You're, um, it looks like a, a, an expert in the Christian tradition, but teaching students from various backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But I, I sense um, in your writing and your talking that you are very comfortable both in the religious realm and the pluralistic religious world. Um, but you have language and depth of theology that makes me think you've got a, a Christian story uh, somewhere. <laughs> so I'm, do, do. do you want to tell yeah. folks about that journey, uh, where, where sure. you are? Yeah. Sure. Uh, and I, I assume they don't want to hear the whole story. Uh, if you get me back on to talk about truth another time. I can tell more of the story then. Sounds maybe great. <laughs> uh, you can tell me what follow-up questions you have. Yeah. But I, I got into the study of uh, theology and of the Bible in the process of exploring my faith, uh, having a, a personal religious experience in my mm-hmm. teens that mm-hmm. uh, sort of set me on that course. As often happens as you study the, the Bible or, and or theology and or any of these subjects, this act of studying, the things that you learn, the things that you engage with, uh, challenge some of your assumptions that you are bringing and that may have been among the things that motivated you to get into this field in the first place. Mm. Uh, Immediately before coming to Butler, let's see, I was, well, I was adjuncting for a year uh, before that, but uh, for a few years prior to that, I was teaching in a a religiously affiliated institution that, had some, had, had some conservative uh, views and was funded by a source that uh, was determined to maintain those things. And so there are certain things you shouldn't, couldn't say there and keep your job. And meanwhile, I was wrestling with things and thinking things and uh, also in quite a, quite a serious dismay at some of the uh, church politics and other things that I saw both in the institution and in um, the people associated with it. And so I've often said to people that uh, I think getting the job at Butler University, which is not a religiously affiliated school, uh, where it's neither promoting a particular religious perspective nor hostile to it, uh, probably saved my faith. Because Mm -hmm. here I was able to say, here is who I am. And it still took a while to figure out, okay, so if this is who I am personally, how does that affect what I do in the classroom? And how do I navigate this? How do I... Uh, how do I serve as an effective coach in the education process, in the learning process for people who are diverse, uh, some of whom are devoutly religious in ways similar to me, some of whom are devoutly religious in ways different from me, some of whom are are devoutly anti-religious due to experiences that they've had or their upbringing or both. And so it really has been a journey and that's something I wrestle with quite a bit as well. But it's, it's been a real privilege that I've had the opportunity both to 
cultivate a public voice that can be my own voice where I can say, you know, my blog may be called religion prof, but I'm not speaking here in my capacity as, you know, employee of Butler University on behalf of the university representing the university's perspective. I'm talking as somebody who is somebody who works in this field and has that perspective to bring, but also has personal convictions and a personal faith and wants to talk about that as well. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. Now, I started today with Star Wars and I wanna end with Star Trek and I wanna throw a, a question at you, um, one of your own questions. Uh -huh. um, would you, would you use the transporter on a, a Starfleet vessel? Or would you insist on flying in a shuttle instead? Yeah, there's there's a reasonable chance I might do it just because it's once a lifetime experience potentially, or <laughs> or it's not right. Uh, but what I have to lose, as I say in the book, is my existence, because there's a very real likelihood that what emerges on the other side, if such technology were possible, would be a copy of me, rather than me myself, and. Whether that's a problem is a, is a whole other question, but I am going to maintain my own continued ongoing continuous existence uh, for, for as long as I can <laughs> and doing something that might, might essentially be me signing on to ending my own existence. I have some qualms about that, even though a perfectly, a perfectly precise copy might emerge somewhere else and nobody else might be any the wiser uh, that <laughs> as far as I was concerned from my own perspective, uh, I no longer have a perspective because I'm gone. <laughs> Thank you for answering that. I, um, I, you open up so many questions uh, that uh, I, I just really urge people to find your blog and your books. Um, and it's, it's a real inspiration to see someone who has interests in a whole lot of different directions um, that actually are all quite connected. So thanks for sharing um, some of your questions and your stories and your insights uh, on sci-fi and, and religion today. Appreciate it, James. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's, it's just been delightful. I hope we have another opportunity to talk again sometime in the future. You've been listening to Souls and Souls, a podcast of Canadian Memorial United Church in Vancouver, Canada. I'm the Reverend Beth Hayward. Thank you so much for joining us in this, our first episode of the Artificial Intelligence series. You can find more of our podcasts, uh, all of the places where you listen. Be sure to like, subscribe, and don't forget to share with those who might be interested. Until next time.